been an interesting week for me. Uh, I just want to share my personal and Gwen's personal sorrow this week. So last Sunday night, I taught Perspectives in Lee Summit and uh, came home. We were exhausted. Monday's my day off. Wake up Monday morning, and I'm getting calls and texts that uh, my, one of my longest and closest friends, Tim Smith, died Monday morning. Just uh, And some of you, they were here, they were members here for a while when they were transitioning, so some of you know him. I've got all the information here. It's on a handout over there for the funeral. Uh, Tim was an Indiana farm boy, so he'll, they've already flown his body up there, and a longtime friend who's a pastor will conduct that funeral. And uh, there's a link to his obituary, and as I understand it, that obituary will eventually have a live stream link at the bottom of it. So some of you who know him and are interested, you'll be able to, Lord willing, technology, be able to watch that. But then also a memorial service will be here in Trenton, Missouri, where Tim, last place that Tim pastored up in Trenton. So, uh, you know, very, very, uh, I've lost now two friends of very close friends from college in sudden deaths. One sadly committed suicide, and then Tim. And it made me think of what I taught last week, and here's what I said in our lesson last week. At the end of the day, someday, we're all going to be flat on our backs. We're all going to be taking our last breath, and our only hope and our only help is going to be the Lord. I had no clue I would wake up to know that Tim literally, it it appears he was exercise routine. And if you know Tim, there's only one place other than exercising would he want to drop dead. And that'd be in the pulpit preaching, which he had just done the day before. But uh, he had done his workout and he was walking out of the rec center, had a heart attack and apparently fell back. And I believe that before even his head hit the ground that he was in the presence of his Lord. Uh, And part of that is because once you're dead, you don't really bleed, and there just wasn't blood. There was a bump on the back of his head, but there wasn't really that much blood. So life is short. Death is certain. Be prepared because we are not promised tomorrow. And you think then, Because when someone like that dies, the first thing you think is, well, when did I see him last? When did I talk to him last? What were their last words? And uh, so I think his last sermon is going to be his most watched sermon because everybody wants to know, well, what did you talk about? And he talked about from Colossians. He was preaching through Colossians and talked about work, work unto the Lord. And uh, Tim was probably one of the hardest workers I ever met. And in that sermon, he uh, said, really honored his parents for teaching him how to work, and both of them are in heaven. So pray for his sister, his twin brothers, his three kids, and uh, it was just good. Good to know him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that your grace is sufficient. We're thankful, Lord, that though we are imperfect, sinful, even after we are saved, our lives are not pristine. And yet, Lord, you call us unto yourself. You call us to be sanctified and to be set apart. 
and truly, Lord, I know that was Tim's heart. If anyone, uh, life is a testimony that we are saved by grace alone, not by our good works, and yet had a confident faith, a living faith, a faith that works like we have been hearing from the book of James, uh, it would be Tim. And though not everyone here knows him or knows of him, at the same time, Lord, we all have loved ones who need to hear the gospel. We have loved ones who may profess Christ, but they're not going to live, leave a clear testimony because they're not living for him. And there will be doubts and there will be questions. But Lord, at the end of the day, we face our creator toe-to-toe, eye-to-eye, no other people there, and we answer for what we have done with his son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I pray for each person here. I pray for myself. I pray for my family that, Lord, we will leave the greatest treasure. It's not money. It's not possessions. It's a clear testimony of not only believing but living for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to praise you because we know you. So open our hearts and minds to Psalm 147 this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. I am glad you're here this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, let's turn to Psalm 147. Psalm 147. And we're going to look at the causes to praise the Lord. Uh, at the top of your notes, I have a chart there for you, and uh, I, I've made some changes. I changed some of my C's, okay? I'm pretty settled on this now as yes, you keep studying. So last week we looked at the choice, the choice to answer the call to praise the Lord. And we said that choice is a lifelong commitment. It's a personal, wholehearted commitment that's based on trusting the one true God. And out of that trust, we are chosen by the Lord. Those who respond to the call are those who have been chosen by the Lord. And we respond by faith when we hear the gospel and we join His covenant people. That was the choice to answer the call. Today, we're going to look at the causes. The causes for praising the Lord are found in His creation goodness and His covenant graciousness. Now, I know I nerd out on this stuff, but this psalm is like the coolest thing, okay? So I gave you the structure there, and uh, it's really simple, okay? So each psalm begins with what? Hallelujah! Praise Yahweh! And so here's your bookends. Here's your frame. We praise Yahweh. And then this beautiful psalm lays out. There is three calls. So, you know, last week we talked about the call. Now we're seeing like serious three calls. And I almost went with that. But it's really the causes for the call that is the focus. So you have a call and then causes. The first ones are focused on regathering the people of Jerusalem. After captivity. Then you have the second call to praise. And then you have causes. Repenting. Talks about fear and faith. Until the final kingdom restoration. Because the people returned. But they didn't come with changed hearts. They changed location. 
but they hadn't changed their hearts. And so there's a repenting until kingdom restoration. And then you have the third call to praise, to praise, and the causes for that praise is the rebuilding the place of Jerusalem. And this is the longest, and this is the focus. And what you see going through this song is this constant back and forth, and you see it in your notes, between his graciousness to his covenant people and his goodness to all creation. His graciousness to his covenant people and then his goodness. And it just repeats in that, repeats in that, until finally we get his grace to his covenant people, and then it ends with hallelujah. So that's the structure, that's the overview, beautiful song. Let's look at the causes for praising the Lord. The first thing I want you to see is the characteristics of the call. The characteristics of the call. (coughs) And what I have listed there in Psalm 147, the three calls. So let's, uh, what we'll do is let's read these three verses and you can get a feeling. So the first one is verse one. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. Or that could be translated, surely it is good to sing praises to our God. Surely it is pleasant and praise is becoming. So it talks about the goodness, the pleasantness, and the becomingness of praising the Lord. Then drop down to the call in verse 7. It says, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises to our God on the lyre. And it emphasizes singing and making melodious music. Now we have the, the inclusion of music. Then we come to the third call in verse 12. And once again, it brings up Jerusalem. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. And in that verse 12, that first praise the Lord in some of your Bibles is laud the Lord, extol the Lord. Now, those are weird words, at least to me. I mean, I don't go around, Gwen, you know, we, you need to extol me, you need to laud me. And if I did, it would only happen once. And I would be told quickly, I'm not going to do that. But we know what it means, but it's unique. And we're going to see there, there is a unique meaning in the call in verse 12. So, when you look at these three calls that I just gave you, there are ten characteristics that I've grouped in five balancing characteristics of the call. This could be a lesson in itself. We're going to move through this quickly, okay? But here's the deal. Basically, from verse 1, the first call, the call to praise the Lord is commanding and fulfilling. God requires it. I mean, all these All these calls are in the plural and they're imperative. It is a command from the Lord. Praise me. Now that sounds rather selfish until you understand he is the only one worthy of praise. And he's doing it not because he is worthy of it, because it is fulfilling to us as his people. God commands that which is for his glory and for our good. Because that's what it says in verse 1. It says, it says, praise the Lord, for it is good. Good. Circle that word. 
The Hebrew word is tov. It's the word that God says seven times in Genesis 1. He saw what he was created, and what does he say? He says it was good, good. And you know what good means? Good means fulfilling the purpose for which you were designed. When he saw creation, he created it, and he says, Oh, this is awesome. It's going to fulfill that which I created it for. So when he says praises are good, he's saying, look, when we praise the Lord, we will be fulfilled regardless of our circumstances. Even if your best buddy dies, you can praise the Lord because this is what we were designed for. This is what he requires for he is worthy. So it's commanding and fulfilling. Then I want you to look at delightful and beautiful. This too is from verse 1. Notice he says, for it is pleasant and praise is becoming. Now this is kind of a weird, uh, there's a lot going on with these words. Good, pleasant, and becoming. Uh, One professor from Southern Seminary translated this way, for it is good to psalm our God. I like that he calls singing psalming. It is good to psalm our God, for pretty praise is pleasant. Now, I'm big on alliteration, but that's too cheesy for me, okay? I'm not going with that. Here's the idea of delightful and beautiful. Here's the idea of these words. It's delightful because it's pleasing to God and to His people. When we praise, God is delighted. And when we get to praise Him, we are delighted. And look, if you find praise boring, you can say, well, it's because of the quality of the music, it's the quality of the singers, blah, blah, blah. No, it's the quality of my heart. Because when I get to praise my God, I can do it through a variety of styles. I can do it through a variety of people. Granted, we have high-quality praise singers that don't distract from praising. That is important. But the bottom line is, what is my heart? Am I delighting in expressing it? And when I do, I know my God is delighted in hearing it. Can I get an amen? amen. Yeah. And, and it's beautiful. It's befitting. So here's the idea. It's beautiful. It means this word beautiful has to do, this word for praise has to do with making uh, a beautiful sound. So here's the idea. Praise is beautiful because it's befitting of our God. He is worthy of it. And it's becoming of his people to praise him. And then it's good because everything's going as God designed it. Isn't that cool? Ah, man, I love that. I could just preach on that for a while. Okay, let's go. We got to keep going. Then vocal and musical. So when we now we're going to drop down to verse seven, the call in verse seven, the emphasis emphasis in verse seven is vocal and musical and and I just want to point out, we'll come to this in future in the future songs. But in verse 7, the word, one of the words is for vocal praise that emphasizes, the first one emphasizes a shout of victory. Okay, a loud shout. Okay, it's the word that's used by Joshua when he and Moses are coming down the mountain for, with the Ten Commandments. And Joshua says... I think I hear the cry of war. That's the word. Shout. And, jo- and Moses says, no, it's not the shout of victory. Same word. 
It's not the shout of defeat, same word. It's the shout of singing. Sadly, singing to a false god. But it was loud. Okay? And hey, I'm telling you, you go to Chiefs Stadium. I'm a Chiefs fan, but I, 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 I have to repent if I idolize them. And if I shout more at a Chiefs game or at the TV than I do in shouting for the Lord, do I mumble through our praise time or do I shout? Okay? And uh, sometimes I have to tame that down because my daughter and my wife rebuke me because they say, you ruin our praise because you're so loud. And I said, I don't know. Take it up with him, Gwen. I don't know what to tell you. But it's shout. But it's also musical. The second word for praise in that call in verse 7 emphasizes making melodious, beautiful music. So listen to this. It means to sing praises with melodious. It means to make music. Listen to Psalm 33. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Strum that guitar. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. We don't have Sarah on the harp, but we got Emily on the cello, right? Okay. And sing to him a new song. And then it says this, play skillfully. Hey, just because it's the Lord, we don't do it to get by. We do it with skill and with excellence. And then Psalm 90, uh, 149 says, um, even do it with dancing. We just said that in a Baptist church, Susan. What, what, what are we to do? With dancing. Let them sing praises to him with timbrel, with lyre. Psalm 98. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. So it's making musical. It's beautiful. You see what the call, it's taking us back. It's good. It's beautiful. It's becoming. It's befitting to sing joyfully, shout loudly, play skillfully, and even dance to the melodious sound of praising the Lord. Carmen, you want to come up and you're about ready to pop up there, I know, but, but we got to keep going. Now, personal and congregational, I just want, we've talked about last week, we'll talk about it again. I just want to say it moves from praising our God, that's the personal, to praise your God to the congregation. Okay, this, move, this song moves that way. And then I, I just want to briefly hit, it's scripture-based and trinity-shaped. What do I mean by scripture-based? Simply, every time you see the Lord in all caps, you see God's self-revealed name. We wouldn't know who to praise if he didn't reveal himself to us. We wouldn't know how to praise if he didn't reveal the parameters of our praise. So scripture, it's scripture-based. That self-revealing Yahweh tells us how to praise, when to praise, where to praise, all these things. And then it's Trinity-shaped. And you're like, I don't see the Trinity in here. And yet, the Trinity is there, and it will be fully revealed in the New Testament. Why do I say it's there? Because we're worshiping our God, God the Father. We're worshiping Him through the Lord, Yahweh. And Jesus reveals Himself as the I Am God. I Am, I Am, I Am. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is what? Lord. And that is sovereign, but I think it also means I am Yahweh. And then, 
All this skillful singing and joy, it's produced in the hearts of the redeemed by the Holy Spirit. And we know that again from the New Testament, that spirit-filled people speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So, man, I got jazzed about that, but we got to move on because this isn't about the call. It's about the causes. Why do we answer the call? So let's dive into the heart of this psalm. There's three causes following the three, ca- the three calls. Cause for the call, God's greatness. The first thing I want you to see that God wants us to see is the cause for the call to praise is the greatness of God. And we see this in verses 2 through 6. Look, notice what it says. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts. That word is often used for exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. He counts the numbers of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord. There's the focus of the cause. There, I'm not just, you know, I don't sit in my room in my office, and say, you know, how am I going to outline this? No, I get my face into the Word. The Word tells me how to outline this. It is the greatness of God. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. The Lord supports the afflicted. He brings down the wicked to the ground. We see the greatness of God. The focus is on great is our Lord. And here's the point. The greatness of our Lord is seen in his gracious regathering of his repenting people. That's the idea. His greatness is seen in his ability to regather his disobedient people who have been sent into captivity. And yet they've been humbled. They've been broken. They've been wounded by their sin. And they come to repentance and God's greatness says, I can take your broken life. I can take your bondage to sin. I can take the infliction of living for self, the affliction of it, and I can heal it all. And I can restore it. Is that not worthy cause to praise? So let's take a look at it. I just want to make three observations. They're in your notes. I just want you to get the background. So here's the first observation. The background is the return from exile of God's humbled, repenting, covenant people. You see, they are outcasts, a word that is often translated exiles. They are broken. They are wounded. They have been taken, speaking of the southern kingdom of Judah, who due to their apostasy were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And listen, when the Babylonians get a hold of you, they were brutal, some of the most brutal people on earth. And we're talking about stripping people naked, women, children, men, chaining them, dragging them all the way across from, from, from Israel to Babylon in chains. And that's what happened to them. Now, it's the regathering. This should make sense to us. Because when we did the overview of Psalms, book five that we're in of Psalms was the book of restoration. 
And Psalm 107 that begins book 5, its first three verses talk about regathering the captives, okay? And so this is the background, restoration. How do we know this? Look at number 2. The rebuilding of Jerusalem. It says in verse 2, the building up of Jerusalem. But we know from the context that the building up is a rebuilding of Jerusalem. Why? Because the rebuilding requires the regathering of the scattered exiles. So we're talking about Jerusalem has been burnt, it's been devastated, the temple has been razed to the ground, the people of God, the last remnant, because the southern kingdom is already destroyed and obliterated and has yet to return, never has yet. Judah was the remnant. They go into captivity. And now to rebuild Jerusalem, the scattered exiles. So that's what, and wow, only God could do this. Only God could do this. And so the building up and, and, and the context of this psalm, it was probably written during the time of Nehemiah. Okay, so let's very quickly turn to Nehemiah 12, just so that you turn there in your Bibles And I'm just going to read pieces of this because it's really cool to see the historical context out of which the Spirit inspired this song. And the context is the rebuilding of the wall. Here in Nehemiah 12, the walls of Jerusalem have been rebuilt by the regathered exiles. And here's what happens in Nehemiah 12, verse 27. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem. See, the city. They're rebuilding the city. So that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs, notice, to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The priests... And the Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people, the gates, and the wall. Drop down to verse 31. Then I had, this is Nehemiah, I had the leaders of Judah come up on the top of the wall, and I appointed two great choirs. Drop down to verse 37. One choir went directly up to the steps of the city of David, Jerusalem, by the stairway of the wall above the house of David to the water gate. Drop down to verse 40. Then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God. So did I and half of the officials with me. Verse 43. And on that day, they offered great sacrifice and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and the children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. That is everything that we have seen in Psalm 147. Finally, I want you to see that the ultimate cause for praise is not that partial, historical regathering. It is ultimately the eschatological, the end-time regathering of God's people into the restored kingdom of David, the new Jerusalem in the new creation. So what you're seeing here was partly happened in the time of Nehemiah. Certainly they returned, but their hearts hadn't been changed. 
They returned, but there was no Davidic king sitting on the temple. And when the true king, the son of David, came, they rejected him, and the temple was burned to the ground and has yet to be rebuilt. Why? Because there's coming a day when the true king comes back, and when he does, he will gather the nation of Israel. They will repent, and the kingdom will be restored for a thousand years, ushering in the new Jerusalem and the new creation. But you and I live between the first coming and the second coming. And you know what God is doing now in the now not yet? He's regathering His called out ones from the nations. He's regathering the people. And when He comes again, then the people having been gathered, the place of Jerusalem will be restored. Isn't that cool? That's just the coolest thing. I got excited about this. Okay, so let's look at, let's look at the characteristics. He, this is what he does, and this is why we praise him. But how does he do it? How he does it is by a demonstration of his divine attributes. So number one, his loyal love for repenting sinners. We see this in verse 2. The Lord rebuilds. He regathers. He restores. He restores those who repent. This ties with last week. Remember last week we said, The Lord keeps faith forever. Listen, if you're his child and you go wayward, and we all sin, and when we sin, he, his loyal love, will draw us back. Listen, if you're living in a life of sin and you don't feel his discipline, you don't feel his drawing you back in repentance, then you need to question whether you're born again. And someone who dies who professed Christ when they were a teenager at camp or wherever, and then lives an entire life that is disloyal to the Lord, when they die, listen, there's no confidence in their salvation. That's not how true people live. They're brought back to repentance. They are brought back because of his loyal love. Now, how does the Lord do this? Number two, he does it with gentle compassion for the brokenhearted. He does it with gentle compassion. Some of you read the book by Dane Orland, Lowly and Gentle. This is who our Lord is, gentle compassion. And we see in verse 3 the eminence, the nearness. He is near to hear the brokenhearted. He is near to hear, to heal them, heal their broken hearts, to bind up their bleeding wounds. And let me tell you, historically, the Lord did this literally for, for the captives. They came back, and God healed their physical bondage. But the Lord Jesus Christ came and fulfilled Psalm 61 on the first day of his ministry in his hometown of Nazareth. He picked up the scroll of Isaiah, and he read Isaiah 61 where it says, I have been called to bind up the brokenhearted, to bring good news to the afflicted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And it goes on to say, to put a mantle of praise on my people. Isn't that cool? So the Lord Jesus came and did that in his ministry. And one day, it's going to be done completely in the new Jerusalem. Why? 
Because in Revelation it says, I will wipe away every tear. Merciful compassion. How else will he do it? Number three, he does it with majestic care over the universe. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, we've gone from being near to here to being large and in charge. We see God's transcendence, his greatness in his transcendence. He counts the number of stars. You know, it, 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 it kills me that uh, man bearing his image keeps discovering the solar system, right? And aren't they beautiful? I mean, like, it seems like every couple years, new pictures of the solar, and they're beautiful. They're beautiful. And we're in awe of seemingly God, uh, humanity's, humanity's technology. God already knows every, every solar system and every star in that solar system. He has counted each one, and not only has he counted them, he's named them. Now, what does that tell us? First of all, God's large and in charge. As we expand the universe, as Christians, we ought to say our God is even greater. Secondly, he cares for his universe because he counts them. Now, when you think about God counting stars, you ought to think about the Abrahamic covenant. Because God said, look to the stars and you will have heirs as many as the stars. But when you see counting stars, you should also think of the Lord Jesus Christ who says your father counts the hairs on your head. So when you look at the stars, think of heirs and hairs. Are you with me? The heirs of Abraham and the hairs on your head. And the point is the same. Because what you count, you count what you know. And what you know, you have created. And what you've created, you own. And that which you own, you care for. God cares about this universe. Rocks, burning stars. How much more does he care for you as your covenant people? His Majestic care. We see his greatness. Fourthly, we see his almighty wisdom in all his purposes. We see his almighty wisdom in all his purposes. We go to verse 5. And verse 5 is, comes out of verse 4. I know that's brilliant, but it's true. Great is our Lord. I mean, who can count the universe and name it? Great is our Lord and abundant in strength and his understanding is infinite. He is all-knowing, he is all-powerful, and what he wills, he does. And he does it with wisdom. And if he can do that in the universe, he can do that in your broken, sinful, messed up life. Okay? He can do that. And he may even answer that phone call. We don't know. So here's the deal. This verse serves as a hinge between the Creator's majestic care in verse 4 and the Redeemer's merciful justice in verse 6. So let's go to that. (coughs) Number 5. We see His greatness in His merciful justice for the humbled... And against the proud. Verse 6 sounds very much like Obadiah's message. Once again, we see Obed-Edom. What? I will exalt the humble and I will bring down the proud. 
And the way the and, and that word supports really uh, it means to support again. It means literally to rebuild. I will restore. I will support you up again as my people. So here's the idea. We're to look at the universe, verse 5, and marvel at his majestic care. Then we look at our difficult lives and how God's people seem to be on the brunt of things and the wicked seem to be proud and lofty. And in between, sandwiched in between that, is God's mighty wisdom. Listen, if he can keep this solar system, this universe running, he can work through your pain. He can work through your sorrow. He can restore you, even if you are so enslaved to habitual sin. If you are calling that which is sin, not sin, he can break through your deceived heart. Man, it's just a, what, what, the greatness of God. Let's praise him, right? All right, there's so much more, but we must go on. There are more causes. So let's go to the next call. The causes for the call. Now we shift from God's greatness to God's goodness. God's greatness to God's goodness. Look at verses 7 through 11. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Now, why is he saying thanksgiving? He's building off of the greatness of God. When you see the greatness of God, we should answer God back with thanksgiving. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises to our God on the lyre. Make music. Be melodious. You can even do a dance. Or a Baptist shuffle. Whatever you call that. Now, verse 8. Who covers the heavens with clouds. Who provides rain for the earth. Who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food. And to the young ravens which cry or caw, caw, caw. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He does not take pleasure in the legs of of, of a man. The Lord, and here it is, the Lord favors those who fear him, those who wait for his loving kindness. Now, the structure of this thing, I didn't want to overwhelm you. There's one more aspect to the structure. That every every one of the causes ends in a contrast. So, in the first point, it ended with the contrast between the humbled and the proud. Okay, Now, the contrast... In verse 10 is between what the Lord does not delight in and who the Lord does delight in. And just let me give you up. Let me let you know. He doesn't delight in the fleshly strength of his creation. The warrior horse, the war horse and the warrior. Not impressed. You know what he's impressed in? He's impressed with his humbled, broken people who have seen his greatness. They fear him. And they put their faith in him and they wait for him to deliver them. They wait for him to restore their prodigal. They wait for him to bring fulfillment of all that he has promised. You know, we get excited about someone like Tim going to heaven. But Tim is obviously blessed to be in the presence of the Lord, but he's still waiting. 
He's waiting for a glorified body. He's waiting for a reunion with those who know him, who are believers. He's waiting. And so we wait with fear and with faith. So let's take a look at it. The focus is this. is Verse 9 really gives the focus to God's goodness. He gives to the beast his food and to the young ravens who cry. We see God's goodness in these verses in three ways. Let me give them to you. Number one, God's goodness is cause for singing praises because he compassionately cultivates the entire earth. Here's this creator God, and he gives us cloud cover so that we don't get burnt up. And he fills those clouds with rain, and the rains fall to the earth, and vegetation sprouts up. Now, see, we get so sophisticated in our unbelief, in our pride, that we reduce that all to scientific systems. And there's a beautiful biology in science to be studied by Christian scientists. We aren't anti-science. We just know there's one greater that is causing all this to happen. And guess what? When he says no more rain, there's no more rain. And when he says there's 40 days of rain and there's going to flood the whole earth, there's 40 days of rain. So instead of cussing and cursing the weathermen who can't figure out the divine mind, let's just thank our God that for the weather because that is a part of his goodness. That is a part of his goodness. So think about what he's saying here. You say, okay, that's, you know, is it just about weather? No, no. The goodness of God is seen in his providential care over our lives in every season of life. That's the idea. The idea is you've got a friend. You see, James Taylor had better theology than he even realized. You just call out my name. This is bad. And you know wherever I am. What? I'll come running. To see you again, winter, spring, summer, or fall, all you have to do is call like a raven, cry out, and I'll be there. You've got a friend. Todd, can I get in the praise team? I keep, every week I'm trying to get in the praise team. So here's the deal. No, you got to try out a little bit. So, I mean, is that not cool? I mean, that song, you take the chorus to one of the most famous pop songs on the planet. How many James, we got any James Taylor fans that will admit it? Yeah, okay, yeah, come on, Jody. Yeah, 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 Jeff, okay. You take that chorus, and that's this song. Winter, spring, summer, or fall. I don't know what season you're in. Are you in a spring? Are you in a summer? Is it like a winter in your life right now? Winter, spring, summer, or fall. All you got to do is call like the ravens. And you know why he picked the ravens? The ravens are often abandoned in nature by their mothers. And God feeds them. And you know why God, remember our study of Elijah? God had Elijah predict a, a coming drought. And then he sent him into the wilderness by the brook Cherith. And it dried up. And the, the prophet was obedient to wait, fear, and wait on the Lord. And how did the Lord feed him? With ravens. And then when our Lord Jesus, the great I Am, was on this earth, 
What did he do in the Sermon on the Mount? He pointed to the lilies of the field. And he pointed to the birds of the air. And he says, doesn't your father know what you need before you even ask him? This is God's goodness on display. Man, that's just good. Keep going. His, he compassionately feeds the beast and the birds. I guess I already covered that. Let's keep going. Third, he graciously delights in caring for his people with the same compassion and then some. So here's the idea. Look to creation. God brings the rain when it's needed. He lets the sun shine. He grows the vegetation. He feeds the raven. A raven, an unclean, it's an unclean bird, by the way, in the Bible. An unclean, ugly, loud, irritating bird gets fed by his creator. Now, understand this, that he cares even more for his covenant people. So I ask you this morning, I assume nothing. Are you in God's covenant family? If you are, you have a heavenly father that cares for you more than a raven. And whatever you're anxious about in this coming year, whatever is distressing you this morning, you know that we have a providential, caring, compassionate creator, but more importantly, a redeemer that watches and cares for his people. And listen to this. He gives all of this and he loses nothing in himself. He just, he, he gives because that's who he is and he loses nothing and he needs nothing from his creation. He gives not out of need. And yet he cares for those who do two things, according to verse 6. We fear him for his greatness and we place faith in him and we wait for him. That's covenant loyalty. All right, third. There's still more causes, okay, for the call. And now we come to the climax of this song, God's graciousness. God's graciousness. I want you to read this in verses 12 through 20. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. He's calling the congregation in their midst. And Jerusalem is now the glorified city of Zion, the city of the king, the city of David. The king has come, for he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your sons within you. He makes peace or shalom in your borders, and he satisfies you with the finest of wheat. So let's just stop there and let's just look at this. First of all, That word for praise in verse 12, I said, was a unique word that sometimes translated extol or laud. And the idea of the, the word is this. Pass on your praise to others. Boast of the Lord so others hear your boasting and they come to praise the Lord with you. Listen to Psalm 145, 4. This is really, this is the same word. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. This idea of lauding and extolling is boast on your God so that you do two things. You pass on his greatness, his goodness, and his grace to future 
generations and foreign nations. That's what our world outreach is all about. Is praising the Lord. It's a celebration of praising the Lord to pass on to future generations and foreign nations. You say, Chris, why foreign nations? We'll see it in verse 20. Now, this last call is the focus. It focuses on God's covenant people. And creation is going to be mentioned, but the focus is on the covenant people. So here's the focus. I take it from verse 20. He has not dealt with us. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his ordinances, they have not known them. The idea is this. God has been so gracious to reveal himself to his covenant people and to reveal his written word. And the nations don't know it, folks, unless we go and share it. Now, let me give you three three reasons God's graciousness is a cause for singing praise. First of all, his special resources for his people. In verses 12 through, 15, uh, 12 through 14, 13 and 14 rather. In 13 and 14, he resources the new Jerusalem. He resources the coming kingdom so that there is shalom within the promised land. And the resources are strength for protection, sons for a posterity, security in the promised land, and satisfaction with his abundant provision. If you wrote one word over that, the grace of God is he will bring shalom in the place of God's people. Secondly, he has a special rule over his people. Look at verses 15 through 18. Here's the creation part, but it's interesting. 13 and 14, he resources them for shalom in his presence, in his place. Then he tells us how he does it. 15 through 18, he sends forth his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. God accomplishes his purposes through this book. And, it, and when he speaks, it runs swiftly and does what he says. He spoke, light, let there be light. And what was there? Light. Just like that. Notice verse 16. He gives snow like wool. He, sca- he scatters the frost like ashes. And he casts forth his ice as fragments. A word fragment often used for little morsels of bread. This idea of feeding is all the way through here. Who can stand before his cold? He sends forth his word and melts them. He causes wind to blow and the waters flow. What in the world is going on? You know what he's saying? He's saying, look at creation. God speaks and there's snow, there's ice, there's hail, and it gets so cold, no human being can stand in his presence. And then God speaks again, and that hard, cold ice becomes melting, flowing water. You know what he's saying to rebellious Israel? You know what he's saying to our hearts this morning? In judgment, I can make your heart as hard as a rock. And no one, no one can change it. And in my grace, 
I can give you undeserved mercy that can make that rock-hard heart flow with waters of living water. That's the idea. Remember the context. That's the idea. Look, if you, if you challenge my greatness, my goodness, if you spurn my grace, there is rock-hard judgment coming. My word will speak. And yet, if you will fear me, place faith in me when you hear of me, then I too will speak the word of forgiveness and soften your rock-hard heart. Man, is that amazing? And then you come to his special rule. He rules through his word, but then he says this. He gives his special revelation to Israel. Notice 19 through 20. He declares his words to Jacob, his statutes, and his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nations. And as for his ordinances, they are not known by them. You know what he's saying? He's saying this. Israel, you are hard, rebellious, rock hard. Yet you have repented at my word. I have made rivers of life flow through you. I have graciously given you my word. And to whom much is given, much is required. Now go to the nations. Go to the nations and share with them my revealed word. Now, as I work through this, and I knew I was going to be tight, but as I work through this, that passage, if I have interpreted it correctly, and I think I have, I think you can see it, the hardening of hearts and the softening of hearts raises many questions. And here are three key questions. And if, you're, if you've been paying attention, you may have already... If you've brought this down into where you are living and your family is living and your friends and your coworkers, then you're thinking these three questions. Why does the Lord harden some and soften others? Number two, how can I know if I am one of His chosen covenant people? Number three, how will those who have never heard, be saved. Now, this is the result of inductively studying God's Word. What I realized, those are the questions that were raised by the text. And, beloved, I've given you the answers from the book of Romans. We've taught through Romans 9 through 11. I've given you those references, but here was the, here was the revelation I got this week. The answers to those questions are real and need to be dealt with with compassion and sincerely. But, but, you must trust in the special revelation of God and not your own reasoning. But here's what's wild. The answers to those three questions are found in this psalm. Here's what you do. When you ask, why does the Lord harden some and soften others? You trust the greatness of His almighty wisdom. He knows what he's doing, and he is wise in what he does. And whatever he does is for his glory and for the good of his people, the greatness of God. In other words, some questions have no answer except the greatness of God's almighty wisdom. And you, tr- you fear him by faith. Number two, the second question, how can I know if I am one of his chosen people? Trust the goodness of his merciful compassion. He shows grace to, to those who fear him and place faith in him. 
of faith that obeys. In other words, you know how you know if you're one of God's elect? Have you heard the gospel and have you responded with an obedient faith? Have you heard the gospel and have you responded? Not just with a profession, a prayer, but a trust commitment of I will trust you even with hard questions and even in hard times. Third question, but how will those be saved who have never heard? Ah, trust the graciousness of our God who sent his word, the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has given his spirit, the written word, and who by his spirit has sent you as witnesses to the nations. See, that was the point. Israel failed to be witnesses to the nations. God sent them into captivity with a rock-hard, ice-cold heart. Then, being broken and humbled by His grace, they repented, and He restored them to the land. And what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to take that grace and that good news and share it with the nations. Folks, our world outreach celebration is coming. Salvation is of the Lord. This is our God. Let us sing praises to Him. Because we have causes. His greatness. His goodness. His, his graciousness. Amen. And all God's people said. And in this series, what do we say? Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, what a great and awesome God you are. You are so good. Winter, spring, summer, or fall, all we have to do is call, and you are there, near to here, large and in charge, and then your grace in revealing yourself through your word. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling. I pray for those who are in a season of fall or winter. I pray for my friend's family as they grieve his loss. But Lord, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that my friend knew that your word abides forever. Lord, let us receive your word for our salvation. Let us share your word in praise for future generations and foreign nations to hear. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen.